0: name, amen. Have a seat, please. I feel like I, like, need a five-minute break after that song. That was insane. That was awesome. Great job, guys. Uh, welcome to church. Welcome to Outward Church. Uh, my name is Tim Porter. If you don't know me, it's because I haven't been around. I've been hanging out with some hicks out in rural Oregon. they are nice people out there in Silverton. Uh, I don't mean to say anything negative about them, but um, but it's good to be back. I haven't spoken here in like two years. And it feels like it's been a long two years. It feels like a lifetime ago that I was, that I was here. And it feels even longer uh, since I was in, the, in these seats, right? I think these exact same seats are, are some of these seats here. In 2009, when we started this thing, I, I'm pretty sure, I'm Matt Porter's brother, by the way. I'm pretty sure Matt planted the church for me uh, to try to get me to come to church. And it worked. But since 2009 or 2007, whenever we planted the church, you've been here since 2009, life is different for me. Uh, I have, this this place is like home. I feel like a little nostalgic a little bit here um, because I've I've been, I don't know, living in this place, this this literal place, hearing from God and, and trying to understand what it means to be a Christian. And after 15 years or whatever of coming to this church and having God speak to me through Outward Church, like, there is some progress in my life. Like, things are different from, from what I was doing in 2009. My life looks different. My thinking is different. My faith is, like, way different, way deeper. My marriage is better. My whatever, my parenting. I didn't have kids in 2000. Or I, did I have kids in 2009? I forget when Henry was born. 2011, no. So I didn't have kids in 2009. need to phone a friend, like, hold on, real quick. Do you remember when my children were born? Life, uh, life looks different for me. My life has been distinguished some from the life that it used to be. And that is ideal. Not, not that I don't have work to do. Not that I am, like, I've, I've reached some, some, uh, some, whatever, some level of perfection. Like, I, I feel like I'm just getting going. But, but there is some progress from in the past. And, and if I can just roll into the sermon, that's what the passage is about. Paul is concerned that the church looks just like the rest of the world. Paul is talking about this. Paul, Paul is thinking that believers and non-believers are indistinguishable oftentimes. And I think it's true. If we're honest, if we, if we can kind of evaluate not just our church, but the church in general, all Christians, when you set us next to a non-believer, sometimes there's not much of a difference. The way we live, the way we act, the way we walk, like there, there isn't much of a difference. So why is that? Why isn't there a difference? Why, why are oftentimes believers indistinguishable from non-believers? So there's, there's a couple reasons why this could be the case. The first thing is that maybe the church has done a, a phenomenal job of raising society up. That we have churched up the world, up to our level. Could this be the reason that we're indistinguishable? Because the church is, or the world is, is to a new level, to new heights? I'm being somewhat sarcastic, but there actually is evidence that the church has benefited the world. I I just want to make sure and and make that clear. Like caring for the poor, that was a Christian thing. That was a uh, Judeo-Christian value thing. It's still happening with the gospel, Union Gospel Mission over here, helping, helping out homeless people. Orphanages is a Christian thing. That was invented by Christians. Hospitals was a church thing. That was invented by Christians. Like Providence Hospital, Good Samaritan Hospital, St. Vincent Hospital, like, hospitals were invented by Christians who were concerned about the sick and the poor. Education was a church thing. The abolishment of slavery, it started in Scripture. Paul is telling a, a slave owner, I forget where it is, but tells a slave owner that he should treat his slaves like a brother. And then fast forward 1,800 years later, William Wilberforce, you know, the superstar Christian in England... Worked for 20 years to abolish the slave trade over there, which set the stage for the Emancipation Proclamation here, which set the stage for the Civil Rights Movement. I'm just trying to make the case. We've done some good. Like, We're not completely, like, degenerates. <laughs> Society has benefited some from the Christian church, but unfortunately, I don't think that's why we look like the rest of the world. Instead of churching up the rest of the world, we unfortunately... Have descended to the world's level. And that's what Paul is addressing. That's, that's not good. Okay, that's, that's disappointing. We should look different, we should be distinguishable from the rest of the world. Okay, you think about the transformation that happens at, as, a, as a Christian, right? What do we hear in, in Ephesians just a few um, chapters ago? We went from death. To life, We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we've been made alive together with Christ. That's a pretty big transformation, right? That's a pretty big event that would happen. That should leave a mark, shouldn't it? When you go from death to life, people should notice that. We were born of the flesh, and then Christians are born again by water and the Spirit. That should be obvious, someone that's born a second time. We went from darkness to light you should be able to pick us out of a lineup, right? When you, when you look at our lives versus the rest of the world, like, I'm no expert. But that's, if you went from death to life, you've been born again, you went from dark to light, that should be obvious. Our lives should look different. Our lives should not look like non-believers. Paul tells us non-believers are marked by the futility in their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, They're alienated from God. They've got hardened hearts. They live in callous lives, and they're engaged in impurity. We should not look like that. That's not us if you're a Christian. We we should not be marked by futility of our minds. We should look like the opposite. We, We can comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth of the truth of who God is. We can know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. That's the opposite of the futility of our minds. And we should not be darkened in our understanding. We have been enlightened to the truth of who God is. We've been enlightened by the light of the world. We're no longer in darkness. We should look different. But unfortunately, sometimes, oftentimes... We don't look different. This isn't just a today thing. Like I said, Paul is addressing this in his passage. Paul is Paul is, is coming at this because it started two thousand years ago, and the same thing has been happening every day for the last two thousand years. It was a problem back then. Believers being indistinguishable between, uh, between non-believers. It's still a problem today. So let's get to the bottom of this. Let's let's uh, let's start with verse. 17 I'm going to go ahead and read that. And we'll get rolling. Verse 17 says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. A couple things about this verse. He just told us 17 verses ago at the beginning of chapter 4, he was urging us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which we were called. He was telling us, you should walk in this way. You should live in this way. And now he's telling us, you shouldn't walk in this other way. Right? He gave us kind of a positive 17 verses ago. And now he's telling us, you should no longer walk. Insinuating these, these Ephesians, these Christians are walking like the Gentiles do. Second thing here is that uh, he's talking to Gentiles and the Ephesians are Gentiles. It's kind of confusing, but he's referring to non-Christian Gentiles. He's referring to the pagan Gentiles. And we can replace Gentiles with non-believer. You should no longer walk as the non-believer does in the futility of their minds. So what does futility of their minds mean? Futility means like something that's ineffective, something that's useless. Non believers are chasing ideas that are ineffective and useless, okay, and will not provide salvation, will not provide satisfaction and completeness. It's a little bit like chasing bubbles. Right? Whether you have kids or whether you, you don't have kids, you can kind of picture what it looks like for kids to run around and chase bubbles. Like this is actually the greatest form of entertainment I have found as a, as a dad with kids. You can just sit in a chair on, on the deck on a nice day, you spend a dollar on a bottle of bubbles, and you blow bubbles, and your kids go bananas. Right? They run around, they knock into each other, they're, they're just having the time of their life until someone bursts their bubble, and then they're ticked. So then you blow another bubble, and then everything's exciting again. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. So chasing bubbles is a little bit like chasing ideas that are useless and ineffective in, in, a, in a way to try to get joy and satisfaction and hope and, and completeness. But it's not just children that chase bubbles. Adults chase bubbles. Did you know that? I work in investments for uh, Monday through Friday. And so I'm always thinking in terms of investments. And so I was thinking about the tech bubble in the stock market. This happened in the early 2000s where the internet was invented in the late 90s and people were like, oh my gosh, this is going to be amazing. All you have to do is have a website, and all these companies are going to make a ton of money. So everything with the name that ended in .com, their stocks just went to the moon, and people were clamoring to buy these things because it was the latest and greatest, and people were, were so thrilled with it until the bubble burst, and it, all that billions and trillions of dollars just evaporated into thin air like a bubble did. It wasn't just the the stock market. It wasn't just the tech tech market uh, bubble, but the housing market did this in 2008. People were overvaluing these assets, thinking, this is going to be amazing. I don't care about the actual value or the fundamentals of a company or the actual value of real estate. I just have to have this real estate. And the prices went up too high, and then, boop, the bubble bursts, and then they come back down. This is kind of evidence that these assets that people are chasing it it's futile these things will not provide completeness and satisfaction these things will not save you your portfolio will will not save you and it's just not investments right relationships can be bubblish you can go after a relationship like no this is the one i i'm going to overvalue this relationship this is it or more dramatically a relationship outside your marriage Oh, this relationship, this is what I've been looking for. I screwed up the first time, this is the one I want. And you go after that relationship and it, and it creates a bubble and then the bubble bursts and then everyone is devastated. Bubbles show up uh, in, in all kinds of ways, in, our, in, in the approval of others. I, I want the approval of others. I want success. I want, um, I want uh, fulfillment. But the one thing that we've been kind of focused on recently, Matt mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, is the chasing of comfort. It seems like comfort is in a bubble right now. Everybody is clamoring for comfort. Everybody wants to be comfortable. No one wants to be uncomfortable anymore. Sometimes people are using the words like mental health. Because of my mental health, I don't want to do uh, the things that I'm supposed to do. I'm sick of going to work because it's stressing me out and I shouldn't have to be stressed. I want to be comfortable. Not all mental health is a bubble and a, and a cop-out. My wife just told me yesterday, if we get pregnant right now, I'm concerned about my mental health. And I don't think she was blowing smoke. She's, we have a six-month-old and the six-month-old is, um, is winning right now, Okay. <laughs> It it has been a long six months. So mental health sometimes should be addressed. Uh, But a lot of the times, and in culture today, comfort at all costs. The endless quest of, of comfort. And are people actually finding comfort? No. They're going after comfort. Comfort is the most important thing that they want. And do they find it? No because you can always be more comfortable. So you're never satisfied with the comfort that you do have because you need more. And it doesn't provide comfort, the pursuit of comfort, it provides discomfort. It provides anxiety. No wonder we're all anxious. The pursuit of comfort is futile. Don't chase that bubble. Don't chase any of those bubbles. That is not you. That are that is non-believers that do that, right? That's not us. We, let me read verse 20 here. That is not the way you learned Christ. That is what we're chasing. We're chasing the knowledge of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That is a bubble that will not burst. That is something that is stable, that is steadfast. That is what we're chasing. Okay, so the futility of the mind was the first difference between a non-believer and a believer. Let's move on to verse 18. we got the second thing that differentiates believers and non-believers. Let me read verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. That's a, mount- that's a lot, right? There's a lot in there. Let me just focus on they are darkened in their understanding. Darkened in their understanding is like they're blinded to how the world works, okay? They, they can't see how the world works. People may be smart. People may be wise. People may have a lot of information, they may be successful, they may have influence, but if you don't have understanding, you're gonna have a hard time navigating this world. If you don't know how the world works, you will not be able to navigate it. It's a little bit like driving a boat in the fog. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I was working for the Coast Guard for a few years and we were in Newport and uh, and the fog would roll in and it is a treacherous place to be in a boat, in the fog, If you don't have radar, you don't know where to go, you don't know where the dangers lie, and so this is just like a public service announcement. Just throw your anchor overboard, I mean like set your anchor and just chill until the fog rolls out. And put your life jacket on in case somebody hits you. (laughs) Darkened in their understanding is like trying to navigate in the fog, you can't see what's going on. Non-believers can't see what's going on. They have a misunderstanding of how the world works in two different ways, okay? The first misunderstanding is that they think the world is going to fix itself. Okay, that's one misunderstanding. The second misunderstanding is like, to heck with the world, I'm just gonna do my own thing. (laughs) That's the second misunderstanding. Let me start with the first misunderstanding. This is non believers put their hope, put their trust in the world, in that the world will fix itself, right? I'm gonna follow the science. I'm gonna follow the data, right? If we follow the science, we can eliminate climate change and we can eliminate all the viruses out there. That's not working very well. Or we're going to look at the information. I'm going to follow all this information that we have available to us. If we can just take all the information and we can download it and we can process it and we can categorize it, we can we can output the, the solutions to the world's problems. Is all the information that's available to us, is that solving problems? I think it actually might be creating problems. I, I don't know about you guys. I'll just speak personally here. But as I try to like, all right, here we go. What's going on? Like, I got this this news, this news program over here, telling me all this. I got articles that I'm reading. I've got podcasts that I'm listening to, and I'm trying to like take all this information in. Okay, now I got to process it, and I got to figure out what decisions to make, how to parent my children with all this new information, with all the mine minefields out there. Okay, I got to try to process all this, and by the time I'm trying to figure out how to process this, there's a whole other wave of information that I've missed because I've been thinking too long about how to process the information, and I'm not left with a real peaceful feeling, right? I'm more anxious and struggling more than if I never had the information to begin with. I don't think following the information is going to solve the problem, solve the world's problems. So with science, we've got data, we've got information. What about education? Maybe if we just get everybody educated and we educate them on the ethics of the world, then we could live in a, in a world free from wars. How about that, how's that working for us, now that everybody's getting educated? Somebody forgot to send Putin his ethics classes. We gotta get that guy educated so he stops invading countries. This is a, this is a fruitless way of living. This is a misunderstanding. This is, a, this is how non-believers, one way, that they're darkened in their understanding. They think the world is going to fix itself, Science is not going to do it. Education, information, politics isn't going to do it. Okay, so some people then change, change their understanding. Well, the world's not going to fix itself. Maybe I'll just do it myself. Maybe I'll just take over. I will be the king. I will make my own decisions. I will do what makes me happy. I will make whatever decisions I want to I make without regard to anyone else. I will submit to no one. I will obey no one. I will do what makes me happy. I will follow my own truth. That's the second misunderstanding that, uh, that non believers are plagued with. They expect. That either the world is going to solve all the problems for them, or maybe they can solve all the, all the problems themselves by doing their own thing. They think they're going to do this. They think they're going to solve the problems without the truth, and specifically the truth of who God is. But the problems remain, anxieties grow, and people suffer. People like driving a boat in the fog, are running into dangers that they don't even see coming. Let me ask you guys something. How are you trusting in a misunderstanding? How are you trapped in the fog and, and trusting in a misunderstanding of, of science or or politics. Oh, if we just had the right leader in office, then these things would be so much better. How are you trusting in that? How are you trusting in yourself to solve problems? How are you deciding, uh, I don't think I want to believe all of this. I'll just pick and choose what I want to believe out of scripture. How are you trapped in the fog? How are you stuck in the ocean taking waves, every wind and and wave of, of doctrine, right? Like we heard in Ephesians last week. How are you taking waves and you're trying to get into safe harbor, but you don't know the way because you're trapped in a fog. You don't know who to trust. You don't know where to go. Let me just tell you, we have the solution for you. That's not you as a believer. You don't have to look to science, to information, to the data. You're not, you don't need to trust in yourself. That's, that's a misunderstanding. Let me read verse 20 again. That's not the way you learned Christ. That's not the way that we get through the fog. We must trust in in God, we must trust that what He has written in this book, that is the solution. That is the plan. That is how we navigate the world. We look to the Creator who created the world to help us navigate the problems of the world. The next difference between believers and non-believers, they're darkening their understanding. they're alienated, they're separated from the life of God. Because because people have rejected God, because people have said, now nah, we'll just we'll just figure this out, either the world will figure this out or I will figure this out, they're separated from God as non believers. That breeds ignorance. And that is because of the hardness of their heart. When you reject God, when you when you rely on yourself, your heart gets, gets hard. Your, your heart is is calloused. And it's not sensitive to the good and the evil that God has has presented to us in Scripture here. And when your heart is hardened, bad things happen. Like verse 19 happens to you. Let me read that. Non believers, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul says when someone thinks about worthless things and has no understanding, when someone's heart is made of stone, that life will often devolve into sensuality, into sexual immorality, into debauchery. Why is it that everything devolves into sensuality and sexual immorality? Why why does this happen? You look at politics, it seems like Politics has has issues of their own, but there's all kinds of sex scandals in politics. You look at businesses that are producing and accomplishing and doing incredible things, and then you have a character like Harvey Weinstein that shows up in a business and just uses his power and his influence to harass everybody. Why is it that, that politics and business devolve into sexual immorality? Why is it that there's these cults now? Have you heard about these cults? Like this cult, Nexium that was a business. Now it's turned into a 700-person, shameful, debaucherous cult that I can't even give you any details on because I, like it, would just be, it would just be horrific for you. Why is it that, I also heard this the other day, that VR... The virtual reality, as soon as the goggles were created, the same day that the goggles were created, there were, allegedly there's a, a porn site available for you to use the goggles and go, and go check them out. Like the porn people are like, first in line because they know that we've devolved to be greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Why is it that the LGBT crew? Has so many people that want to join in that that there are so many letters now that they have to add a plus at the end because they're going to have the whole alphabet here at some point because people are greedy to jump on board to this to this group i'm not trying to call them out Specifically, overvaluing your sexual identity is no worse than overvaluing money or overvaluing food or just being a prideful, arrogant jerk. Like, we deal more with those latter things than we do with the LGBT crew. But, like, every letter in that, in that crew is another form of impurity. And we are greedy non-believers. Let me rephrase that. Non-believers are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not us. We are believers. Verse 20, again, that's not the way we learned Christ. We can't act like that. So how do you learn Christ? Why does he say it like that? That's bizarre. How do you learn a person? Well, he's not saying you learn about somebody, okay? He's not saying you just learn a bunch of facts about someone, that's not how you learn Christ. I'm reading a book about John Adams with my son. When we get to the end of this book, I'm not gonna know John Adams, I'm gonna know about John Adams. When he says that's not how you learn Christ, he's like, that's that's not how you have come to know Christ. How do you come to know Christ? you got to know that he is a personal Christ. Uh, Spurgeon has some cool stuff on this. Charles Spurgeon says we must know him as a personal Christ, a real and personal Savior whom we have spoken with and have heard from, a personal Christ we know and are known by personally living with a personal savior, personally trusting a personal redeemer, personally crying out to a personal intercessor and receiving personal answers from a person who loves us and manifests himself in us. We have learned Christ because God in his grace and in his mercy has shown Christ to us. He has made him known to us. We have learned Christ When he takes our hardened hearts, our hearts made of stone, and he replaces them with a heart made of flesh. Check this out, Ezekiel 36, 26. I didn't give it to them, so they won't be able to put it up. Just listen. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is how we come to learn Christ. Christ. Right? As a believer, you've experienced this if you're a believer. When all was lost in your life, when you were in the fog, in the thickness of the fog, and in the darkness, and you didn't know where to turn, you didn't know who to trust, and you cried out to God, it was God that took your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. It was God that took your confusion, took your anxieties, took your shame, took your guilt, and he breathed life into you. He breathed uh, peace that passes understanding. You're no longer darkened in your understanding. You have been enlightened in your understanding. You're no longer futile in your thinking. You can comprehend how great God is. And you know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That's what it means to learn Christ. But there's a little bit more. Verse 27 of that Ezekiel passage says, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do You want to fully learn Christ? You got to live like Christ. You've got to submit to Christ. You've got to obey Christ. That's a little scary for some of us whose lives are indistinguishable from a non-believer, isn't it? It's like, that's a little heavy. What it's not saying is that you have to be Christ. What it's not saying is you have to be the hero. But it is saying there must be some form of Christ-likeness in you. There must be something in our lives that distinguishes us from the rest of the non-believing world. There must be something. So how do we do that if we're struggling? How how can we we transform our lives? Over 15 years, like I felt like my life is is being transformed. How can we do that? How can you go from a place of fog and confusion and misunderstanding and, and get through it? How do you do that? You need a buddy with radar, all right? In the coast, on the coast, in Newport, at Yaquina Bay, there's these things called halibut openers when there's like all these boats, like 600 boats leave the harbor and go out halibut fishing in the summer. And sometimes when the fog rolls in and people don't have radar, they're hosed, right? They can't make it out to the ocean unless they find a guy with radar on their boat. And so all of them will crowd around. They will drive behind the guy with radar as they go out the channel because they're pretty sure the guy with radar is not going to run into the rocks, right? The same thing that they do is the same thing that we need to do. We need a buddy. We need a friend to help us get through the confusion and the fog and the misunderstandings. We need someone who can see through the fog to help those who are trapped in the fog. We need someone who has been enlightened to help someone who is in the dark. That is how I have come to to learn Christ. That is how I have experienced this. This is, this is what the church wants to do. This is what we want to do. This is great to have everybody here to listen to some killer music, to hear the gospel preach. but this is meant to set you guys up to find a buddy so that we can be learning Christ together, so we can be walking through life together and looking out for each other. This is, I'm not talking about a new initiative or a new program or a new event or a new production I'm talking about like coffee or a beer or like dinner or breakfast or sitting on your deck, maybe blowing bubbles, if that's your thing. It's going to be really exciting for some of us. Just hanging out, hearing from each other, saying, how are you chasing bubbles? How are you trapped in the fog? What keeps you up at night? And then ultimately sharing, this is how the gospel has transformed my life. This is how the gospel has helped me cut through the fog that I couldn't see before. But the fog has been lifted now. My life looks different now. I can see good and evil. I can, I can understand now the love of Christ. And I have such incredible gratitude for that. I have such, uh, such immeasurable thankfulness for the love of Christ. And that is what what has compelled me in this new life. That's what I have for you today. If you want to distinguish your life from maybe the old life or maybe the rest of the world, we got to do this together. I would encourage you to find a buddy and to work through that together. Let me pray for us. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the... The understanding that you have given us, the relative understanding that, that we have, and we ask you that people that, that do not have understanding, people that are, are chasing futility, that they would be able to hear from you, that they would be able to see you, that they would be able to learn Christ. Not learn about him, but get to know him, the personal savior, the personal redeemer, the one who, who who paid for our sins, the one who got uncomfortable on our behalf. I pray that this that this would this would enlighten us, that our lives would look different, and that we would be distinguishable from the rest of the world. I pray this in your name. Amen.